This is the Femme Perfect Podcast, episode 24, with your host, Carly Samudre, with psychotherapist and health at every size advocate, Hillary Canavy. Everything around us is telling us to work harder on our bodies. And there's very little reminders around us that you are lovable no matter what size and shape your body is, and that people want to be with you, and that there are no big rewards from this culture for becoming thinner, prettier, or smaller. All there is is a false sense of security that you're protecting yourselves from weight stigma. That was just a little sneak peek of our episode, and I cannot wait to get into it. You might hear that my microphone is a little echoey because guess what? I am moving, and so we have gotten rid of a lot of stuff and packed a lot of stuff. And so this room is a little empty, so my apologies, but I'm excited for one of my favorite episodes this whole mini-series. So I'm excited to just jump right in, but I want to tell you the four things that I hope we learn today. So number one, I hope that you and I will learn from this interview with Hillary how to accept a variety of body sizes and not stigmatize or discriminate against people with different body sizes that are different from our own. What it looks like if your kids come home and someone calls them fat. Um, Those are hard conversations and Hillary's going to tell us some ways to have them with our children. Number two, how to make food choices from a place of self-care rather than self-control. Number three, how to treat your body with respect and kindness and how to treat other people's bodies this way too. Number four, how to apply nourishing practices that will adopt a healthy lifestyle for you, not one driven by body shame or a desire to change your body. Hillary has some amazing tools and tips for us. She's going to give you two models, uh, two new ways of thinking, and then ways to apply this as well. So this is going to be a killer end to the mini series, The Femme Perfect Body Love Project. And after the interview, I just want to encourage you to stay so you can listen to what is going to happen next for Femme Perfect. You might guess because I'm moving, I'm going to take a little season break. And so I'll tell you all about that and the exciting news that we have coming up, but you have to wait until after the episode. And so without further ado, welcome with me, Hillary. I'm just really excited that you're here with us today. Thanks for jumping on. My pleasure. My pleasure. I love to talk about this stuff. What I'm doing with my audience right now is doing a mini series on body love, body positivity, body trust. Uh, And my podcast is aimed at helping women get past shame. And so when I read on your website that our passion is helping people lose the weight of body shame, I was like, oh, yeah, I love it. Uh, And create the change they seek from a deeper place. And that really resonated with me. So I first heard you speak on Christy Harrison's podcast, Food Psych. Cool. And the title was Building Body Positive Families. And I was doing this out of research for my own uh, project. And so when I listened to that, you brought up a ton of points. And I wanted to let my audience go and hear that episode on Food Psych as well. But also, um, we had some women that gave me some questions of what to ask you. So I have questions. The community has questions. And I just wanted to talk more about health at every size. And my first question for you is, do body positive families in this culture, do they even exist? 
I'd like to think yes. And I think maybe we're few and far between right now. Um, I think that there's also various degrees of, of the way we express um, body positivity, but I think that they, I think that they do. And I think that it's something that's just coming into being like, we're, we're kind of making it so right now. I think, Mm -hmm. I think that it's requiring families to really make an active choice to move in the direction of weight inclusivity and body positivity. And it's really uh, inviting particularly parents to do their own healing work around what it's been like to live in a world that's filled with weight stigma and dieting culture um, in order to create something that can be profoundly different for their children. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. We're definitely still learning what that looks like. I think it's going to be important for the parents to that are listening to this. Maybe you don't have kids listeners and maybe you're wondering for yourself when I do, how do I start building this culture in my life and then for my future family? So I'm really excited to talk more about it. And I wanted to ask Hillary, do you have, you have your own family and Mm -hmm. this is something that is really important for you. Can you tell us a little bit about how this looks like in your own life? Yeah. Um, well, first and foremost, I mean, I entered into this, this work, um, in the health at every size arena as a therapist. So I am a therapist and I've been helping people do their healing work around their bodies for about 17 years. And so when it came time and I was lucky enough to have children, it became very, it was very important to me that the work that I had been um, you know, the healing work I'd been sharing with people for a long time was also translated at home. And, you know, my husband and I are kind of foodies and we really like, you know, have a really positive relationship with food. And Mm -hmm. we really, that was really important to us around our kids too. And I wanted to make sure that dieting culture wasn't going to show up in my house, uh, that my kids knew, that they had the option to not be afraid of fat or fat bodies and Mm. that they got to have the bodies that they were going to have and feel safe and accepted in my home and in our home. And so I also had seen in, as a counselor that the people, the people that came to me in the most pain around their relationship with food and their bodies you know, they didn't learn that their bodies were a problem on their own. They had always learned it from a family member or a physician and not even from other kids. I mean, that was Mm. never the first person that they named. And usually that this happened in a way that was some, you know, whole, like well-intentioned, like um, mothers introducing their daughters to dieting culture early on so that they could control the size and shape of their body so that they would be accepted or a physician reacting to a girl's body around the time they're eight or nine, because girls typically put on weight around that age in preparation for their, um, for puberty. And so usually that's the context in which I'm hearing that people first were introduced to the, to the idea that there's something wrong with their bodies because of their size or shape. And Mm -hmm. I think it's really important to get messaging out that 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 the you know between the eight around the ages of eight or nine are times when our kids are and particularly girls are moving towards dieting culture 
And in my house, I wanted to make sure that my kids um, had the tools they needed to respond when they hear fat shaming or body shaming around them, or if people made comments about their bodies. Yeah, I'm really curious about those tools that you mentioned. Uh, I'm a counselor as well. And so Uh I'm really excited to dive into more insight, the insight in the room. But I think the people that are listening to this podcast are on a larger scale. They are just noticing that, hey, something's not something's not right. Maybe I'd like to make a change. And they're wondering, they're, they're trying to make the changes and they don't know how. So this podcast is more aimed at those tools that what can we do? What does it look like? Where do I need to go to learn how to have these tools implemented in my life? And so that's where I send people to go do their own work then after that. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like too, that you're saying around eight or nine, this is super normal, but for some reason in our culture, it, sends up the red flags of, Hey, we need to change. Now your body is changing. It's time to do something about it and it's time to manage it. Yeah. It's really interesting that that is really, I mean, it's a very common answer over the years. I've asked the majority of my clients and groups and workshops individually, this question and eight or nine is the time when people have most often learned that there was something wrong with their bodies. And I don't think, I think that culturally we have to acknowledge that, Puberty is something that we're wary of, um, that we're that we're taught as a negative thing. Many other cultures have ways of celebrating that kind of, you know, the first menses or um, that coming of age. And unfortunately, in our culture, what we're seeing is that that is our primary way of acknowledging puberty is introdu- it's introducing people to dieting culture. And we need a different way to teach people about how teach our children about how to occupy a body. So in my house, we, you know, we are constantly talking about how there's nothing wrong with fat. There's nothing wrong with fat people. Um, We embrace the word fat as a neutral term, kind of like, you know, thin and fat, tall and short. This is a part of the health at every size movement is reclaiming this word and stripping of it, uh, stripping it of its um, kind of pejorative connotation. Although Mm -hmm. not everyone's ready for this, it's usually quite a big process to get to the place where fat becomes a neutral word. Mm -hmm. Um, But in my house, um, you know, we make sure that all we talk about, you know, all people are included, all people are beautiful, all bodies are lovable. And that, you know, is kind of our bottom line agreement. So when my kids are just now um, at the ages of five and eight, getting introduced to the idea that other people think see fat as a fairly negative thing, they often come home pretty confused. And we get to talk about it a lot because of that. They get to come and ask you questions and that's your chance. And I'm wondering, kids are naturally curious. And I'm wondering, what? how do you react when your kids make comments or start to ask questions about fat or skinny uh, or pretty versus ugly? And what does that look like in your house? Well, I think, you know, I try to remain really curious and, um, you know, I was certainly raised in dieting culture and, um, raised, you know, around weight stigma. So I have to remember my, myself that fat is a neutral Mm -hmm. word and that we don't want to use it as a negative word. And that's the distinction I make with my kids. So, um, a couple of weeks ago, my five-year-old came in and said at school, so-and-so was calling so-and-so fat. And at the same time I was making him a piece of toast 
he'd asked for another piece of toast and he said, I'm fat. And I said, Mm. what does fat mean? You know, like, tell me what you mean by that. It was the first time I think that he had made the connection between eating the idea that, that, that eating can make someone fat, which is not entirely true. You know, it's different. Everybody has different metabolisms and different bodies and all that. And so we got, you know, it was an opportunity for me to really talk to him about how when we label one, you know, when we label one kind of body good and another kind of body bad, it's a way of hurting other people. And really, if we look at all the people that we love in the world, they all come in different shapes and sizes, and they're all very lovable. Wow, I love that response. Yeah, so that's the kind of conversation I'm having. But I will, you know, be honest and say that because I'm always unraveling my own relationship with weight stigma, because I was raised in it, you know, I'm 40, Mm -hmm. so I have 40 years of stuff to unravel, that I that I am always having to check my reactions, right? Like I'm always having to really center myself first and let him lead and then return to some bottom line agreements I've made around accepting people for what they are. The truth is that bodies are diverse in their size and shape and it's diet and culture that has taught us to to view fat bodies as a problem and thin bodies as acceptable. And, and in truth, and since the dawn of mankind, people have been of wide range of sizes. We, you know, the obesity epidemic in quotes idea is really done far more harm than good and has not created a better state of health for most people because most people are dieting and dieting is harmful. And so it's, we to go down this path in your family means unraveling a lot of the things that we were taught in the name of health and well-being that are truly not serving our children or ourselves to to really embrace um a, a kind of self-care that's really sustainable so it sounds like hillary removing the fat stigma removing the labels, mm-hmm. checking your own reactions and making sure you're doing your own work. Yeah. And then getting really curious and letting your kids lead the way with some questions and some openness is three ways already you're using a, a safe place and a non-judgment zone for your home. Does, yes. Am I getting that right? Yeah, absolutely. It would be the same thing that would happen if my kid came home and said something racist. Mm-hmm. You know, we would want to, we would, you know, I think as a culture, we um, are hopefully uh, more readily addressing racism than we are addressing sizeism in our homes, you know, but it's a similar conversation. What's really true? How do we unravel this? How do I not respond with fear or judgment about what my kid is saying, but really offer information that's helpful and returns them to, you know, the state that they were born in, which is to be very accepting and and readily available to love other people. I love that you just mentioned that. Listeners, maybe you're still struggling with sizeism and accepting all body types, but you can still apply these tools in other areas of your life. And so I just wanted to encourage you, listener, if you're still struggling with this concept, these are really foundations for us and having healthy families in general. So thank you, Hillary, for bringing that up. You're welcome. Thank you. In your episode with Christy on Food Psych, you talked about using an eating competence model with your children. Could you describe what that is? 
Yeah, there's a couple schools of thought, very similar. One is um, Ellen Satter's work. It's E-L-L-Y-N, Ellen, S-A-T-T-E-R. She has quite a few books on the market that are excellent about feeding children. She's a, she's a childhood feeding expert is her role. There's also a lot of YouTube videos that can be really helpful too. And she talks about a division of responsibility and feeding that, you know, that kind of evolves developmentally. So by the time kids are toddlers through adolescence, the division of responsibility is saying that the parent is responsible for what the kids eat, when kids eat and where kids eat. And the child is responsible for how much and whether they eat. And so one thing that we're not wanting to do is, okay, well, we, when parents get really concerned about their child's food intake, we're actually introducing static into a, into their, their natural inherent ability to feed themselves and respond to their body's hunger and fullness cues. Um, Mm. And their kids' hunger and fullness cues may be very different than what we've been taught that they should be. But we also have to remember that what we've, a lot of what we've been taught about food and feeding has been greatly influenced by dieting culture, unfortunately. And so this model and also the intuitive eating model is a model that, that is really trying to return us, um, whether we be our children or ourselves to the natural cues we were born with to regulate food intake. We've also been taught to think about the way our kids eat, you know, in terms of like a day and lots of the information out there is showing that kids get what they need, but it might be more over the course of several weeks or a month. And so Mm, there may be, you know, there's some days where my five-year-old is just going to eat sausage. And because he, well, he really likes it. Yeah. But, um, and then, you know, we won't see a vegetable for a while or, or a piece of fruit. And, you know, naturally my anxiety raises, but in, if I let go enough, I will definitely see that those other foods will enter into his diet in a period of time. I think I, I, we battle this. I got to be a good mom. So I got to make sure they have three square meals a day with all the right nutritions and that speaks to the anxiety on our part. I mean, part of the challenges I think in the United States, our food culture has centered more around nutrition than about our relationship with food. And so in the past few decades, when, when people in France who have a very healthy, have a very healthy relationship with food, generally speaking, have seen a rise in um, metabolic syndrome or prediabetes, the country decided to educate people on their food culture instead of educating people on the nutrients in the food. And they found that a lot of people returned to, um, you know, ways of feeding themselves that were more natural, sustainable and enjoyable. And I think in the United States, we focused more on piecing apart nutrition. And so we have kind of left behind or forgotten that primarily what drives our relationship with food is the fact that we have a relationship with food, you know, not so much about the parts of what we eat, but that we have natural and and inherent cues within us that tell us what we want and how much and when. And um, that we can trust our bodies and our body signals, um, and we can particularly trust our children's. 
sometimes if you haven't been doing this in your family and you try on an intuitive eating or division of responsibility feeding model, you're going to go through a period of time where kids are going to be drawn towards the foods that have been deemed special or um, have been restricted or are con- have been considered not healthy. I mean, that's true for all of us that when we have been restricting food, that we're going to be drawn towards the foods that have had a big no around that. And what we see is after a period of time, two weeks to a month, usually that the relationship with food kind of settles. And this is true for our kids, but this is also true for us as adults. If we're trying to, um, heal from chronic dieting or, or controlling, um, restricting or, or, um, yeah, or if we've had a history of restricting our food or restraining our food, um, for dieting purposes, that it will take a period, you will crave all the foods you think you shouldn't be eating for a period of time. And after you've had some time to eat those foods again, you will find your relationship with food normalizing. Normalizing. It'll get back to normal soon. Yeah. You'll want salad again. You'll want vegetables again, but maybe not in the beginning. How can we start applying this in our lives and helping our kids trust their bodies? I would really recommend um, reading some, you know, looking into some resources first. So reading some Ellen Satter or listening to some of her work online or doing some of your own healing work first um, and picking up intuitive eating, either the workbook or the audiobook or the, yeah. the, print, the print book and reading through that because I think it helps to have a pretty um, robust, like, uh, foundation to that will um, allow you to really understand from the inside out how how far away you've gotten from your own ability to trust your body. Because it, when we know that trust is possible, even if we don't know how to do it, it's easier to extend it to our children. Um, and I would recommend also just kind of getting one of those books and following the rules <laughs> that they lay out, yeah. um, knowing that these are experts for a reason and that they have, you know, they have helped a lot of families heal their relationship with food and move towards something that feels far more sustainable. But first I would, you know, you can, I'll, I'll say them again, this division of responsibility you could play around with for a little while, um, mm-hmm. knowing that the parent is responsible for what, um, when and where kids eat. You know, so what, like what food's available, Ellen Satter recommends, you know, even at the beginning, putting all the food on the table at the same time, including dessert, uh, when, you know, are you providing meals on a regular kind of predictable basis? So kids know when food is coming and where, like, where does your family typically eat? And does the kids know to have some routine around that? So that's the parent's job. The kid is responsible for how much and whether they eat. And so kids can serve, you know, and moving towards allowing your kids to serve their own food at the table um, and allowing them to say yes or no to food. In our house, when we first started doing this, I always made sure that I had some food that the kids really liked available. So I knew they would eat something. And that often in my house was pita bread. My kids are really into pita bread. So um, and that was just always on the table. And if that's what they ate, sometimes that was not my business. 
What sounds like to me might be a problem or a barrier to busy families or Mm -hmm. uh, if you don't have that already scheduled time, maybe kids are coming home from school and getting themselves their own snacks and yeah, maybe they're grabbing dinner just on their own before a practice or a, a game here and there. Maybe you don't have a table to sit around. You might not. Yeah. I mean, I think that one of the best things that we can do for our kids is try to bring some predictability to when food is available. And it doesn't matter if they are, you know, it's okay if it's the snacks after school, if they know that that's always going to be true, that helps them regulate their relationship with food. For kids that don't know when food is going to be available, we find that they eat a lot of food all you know, when it is available and lose, lose the ability to be able to trust their hunger and fullness signals because they don't know when they're going to have access to food. Exactly. This body load project is literally the first time I knew kind of we should have a family routine. Family dinners is important to our family culture, but I didn't know how important it was to be a guide to help regulate my future children and help teach them and guide them and be an educator in this and that I would have to do my own work first as well. This is just a huge topic and I'm so glad we're talking about it. I am too. I think it's really important that it, that we name that the ways that we, um, the reasons why we haven't known how to do this is because we live in a culture that's, you know, really emphasizes dieting and thinness and, um, and equates that in, in advert, equates that maybe inappropriately with health, and that we are having to kind of heal collectively from all that messaging and move towards something really different for our kids. And so, if you out there are listening and you feel this kind of scares you or worries you or even makes you mad, I just really want to honor that. And, yeah. um, and say, you know, why, why this has been hard has not been any of our faults. You know, it's, it's just not been, it's just that we are trying to, and needing to heal something that's been really challenging for our culture for a long period of time. If we do this work though, there's an incredible reward that will come from it, which is that, um, our daughters and our sons will, get to live more freely and in their bodies, they will maybe not have to spend their entire life obsessed with thinness and may be able to put that energy into something that's more productive or authentic for themselves. And we will have far less eating disorders and eating disorders are the most lethal mental health diagnosis that someone can receive. And and it's an epidemic among our girls, um, particularly, and and, and increasingly among boys, and and also particularly around kids that aren't um, gender conforming. It's, It's really, really needs to be brought into the light a little bit more. There are huge consequences for keeping on, once you're educated and you know... The the gravity of the situation, there are huge consequences for not making changes. And so I wanted to ask two things before we get to the end, one of our listeners and then um, making sure that I didn't miss anything. When you started talking about the tools in your own family, uh, Uh what were some of those tools that you're using to educate your kids and educate, I don't know, other people's kids if you're counseling them and things like that? Um, I, I, a couple things. I mean, I think that I talk really openly about appreciating different people's, a, a diverse range of bodies and 
that we talk about how painful it is when someone is, um, maybe others us by somehow indicating that our body size is not right or our body shape is not right. And my kids get to talk about that pain, uh, without me coming up with a plan for them to fix it. We don't want to do any more fixing about body size. That's a big deal. Um, yeah. I mean, when, when we see that the dieting, that dieting has a 95% failure rate and that at two to five years, most people have regained the weight they've lost and plus some more, um, that's not the pro that's not the fault of individuals. That's an indication that dieting is not a successful intervention for people for a higher body weight. Um, and so in my house, we will never talk about fixing or changing the size and shape of our bodies. I also make it really clear in my kids' classroom and other places that I do not want food to be talked about in a way that makes some foods more special than others or um, that elevates the value of certain foods over others. So I've implicitly asked my kids' classroom to not talk about sugar in a way that's particularly negative, for instance. Um, mm. it's an uphill battle. We have a really great teacher that's very on board, but not all the other parents are on board. But right now I've asked for that commitment and so far so good. The other thing I do is I try to model loving my body in front of my kids. And even on days that I don't love my body, I model kind and respectful care of my body. My kids will not hear me talk negatively about the size and shape of my body ever. That's amazing. And so, so needed. needed. It's so needed. And I think it's unfortunate that that's kind of a radical occurrence. And at the same time, I want them to, you know, we don't really, we don't, part of parenting has not been teaching kids how to occupy a body with kindness and grace. Like we teach them yeah. how to brush, brush their teeth and we teach them how to like stay clean and, you know, get dressed and do all these things that are really important, but we have not maybe as a culture yet skillfully learned how to teach our kids to occupy themselves with self-compassion and acceptance. And I do think that that is crucial in our kids' development. Um, and I will say that as a parent, trying to source and teach my kids the things um, that I didn't get myself has been one of the more uncomfortable and painful parts of my yeah. own he healing process. And it's also maybe been the most rewarding to see that they are already getting to live with a great deal more freedom and peace than I did when I was their age. Amazing. Hillary, one of our listeners, Anna Lee White, she has a, a question sure. and it's a little bit more basic. So yeah. she wants to know some basic tips on keeping a positive, a positive body image and having self-esteem for herself as a woman 30 years and older. She no. says it's so hard not to compare yourself to others in today's world. It is. Yeah. The comparing mind is, you know, is, um, part of our inner critic and we all have an inner critic. It was in place since we were the age of four and it can feel like it really rules the roost sometimes. And I feel like it's important to acknowledge that it's just one piece of us and that there's many other parts of us that also get a vote. It is really hard. I mean, I think that the, everything around us is telling us to work harder on our bodies. And there's very little reminders around us 
that teach us, that remind us how short our lives are, how important it is to do the things that you value the most so that you get to have an impact, that you are lovable no matter what size and shape your body is, and that people want to be with you, and that you, there are no rewards. There are no big rewards from this culture for becoming thinner, uh, prettier, or smaller. All there is is a, a false sense of security that you're protecting yourselves from weight stigma. And weight stigma harms everyone. It harms people in the larger bodies more than people in smaller bodies, but it still has all of us hustling for our sense of worthiness. And if you find yourself always hustling to feel worthy, uh, the best suggestion I have is to cultivate relationships with people where you get to tell the truth about your experience, where you get to reach out when you're feeling um, pain, and that you get supported in not working, moving towards perfection, but moving more towards adequacy. I also think it's really important to normalize that bodies change, that we aren't meant to live in the same body our whole lifetime. That's not how we're packaged. And the way women's bodies gain weight with children and with menopause have protective factors. The hormonal changes have protective factors for our aging process. And so it's important to remember that if your body's naturally doing something, it's there's a reason for it. It's not necessarily a sign that there's something wrong with you. If anyone needed to hear that, I want you to pause this recording right now and go back and listen to that again. Because when you were talking, Hillary, I started getting choked up. I'm going to go back and listen and cry because I needed to hear that. We all need to hear that. I need to hear it. We all need to hear that, that, you know, the ways that we've been taught uh, to protect ourselves by always perfecting our bodies are creating pain and distraction, but not are not allowing us to become more of ourselves. Amen. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Hillary, is there one last thing you want to have people walk away with today? I just really want you to know this hasn't been your fault. You know, that's where I start with, with all my clients too. I can give you, you know, I think it's hard to believe that, you know, I think if dieting has a 95% failure rate, then uh, most of us have been left feeling like a failures in our ability to make, you know, to deal with um, the size and shape of our bodies. And I want you to know that that is by design from the dieting industry. It depends on repeat customers that the ways you have struggled to live in your body as a, as a person in this culture has not been your fault. And I really invite you to know that, um, I really invite you to consider moving towards some kindness for yourself around that. The other thing I, I think is really important is that part of self-compassion is, is understanding that the ways we suffer is what draws us in closer together. That if you're suffering in the yeah. body that you're in now, yeah, it doesn't mean that you have failed. It's please know that you're so not alone in this, that everyone is suffering around you. And if we could switch our conversations from the ways that we're going to fix our bodies to the ways that we've tried to fix ourselves that have been harmful, if we could talk about the harm we've experienced in the endeavor to fix our bodies we will radically change this conversation. Wow, Hillary, this is so powerful. Thank you so much for being here today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks everyone for listening and considering what I have to share.
Where can we find you, Hillary? You have a website and a practice, but where can we know more about you? My website is benourished.org and we offer e-courses and we do some individual Skype work and we offer retreats for people who are working on healing their relationship with food and body. And then we also offer training for healthcare professionals and how to move your practices to, to focus more on body trust and weight inclusivity. Oh, Hillary, that's awesome. Does that work for mental health counselors as well? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Well, we'll chat soon. (laughs) Yeah, we should. We should. Oh man, Hillary, thank you so much again. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. So there it is. That's the end of our Femme Perfect Body Love Project, this mini series on helping you guys realize the larger cultural connotations for a very common shame trigger that women have and that's shame around our bodies and so I really hope that this mini series helped you recognize what shame actually looks like in our culture what larger cultural influences play into um, something that a lot of women experience but don't know what to do with and what freedom from shame might look like for you especially in regards to shame around our bodies you can find all relevant information for this podcast including where to find hillary and her website on the show notes at femperfect.com backslash ep24 for episode 24 i love what hillary said for our listener anna and it just really applied to me as well in my life i want to be able to be free to make impacts and live my life doing the things that i love to do not being worried about my body size And that makes me think that the Femme Perfect podcast needs to keep on going. So I'm going to take a season break, except we're going to have one last interview with a woman talking about how to get past shame going through a really terrible custody battle with a divorce and also what it might look like to have a blended family and the trickiness that can come from that and how to make sure that your family can have a really healthy family culture, not one ruled by shame. And so we are going to have that last episode and then end this this season of the Femme Perfect podcast. I am going to update you guys on what it looks like, but we're going to interview more counselors to talk about the tools you can start doing and what might be counterintuitive ways to really live an authentic life. I want to encourage you to go to femperfect.com and hit the subscribe button so that you can keep on getting email updates about what is coming next. You ladies rock. I can't wait for our next season. Uh, We'll have one more episode and so I'll see you next week. Have a great rest of your day and let's keep on getting past shame together. 